Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the afternoon service of Saturday the 9th of October 2010. This is part two of two in the seminar entitled Missing in Modern Bibles. Here's Brother Jack Mormon. Just let me, uh, you know, we, we feel to be a Bible Christian, appreciate the pastor here and his desire. Uh, I often like to show my picture of the uh, lights of Europe, and uh, there, there's where we are today, right there. And just, I can almost pick you, pick you out there. There we are, with the lights of Europe and all the people of Europe, and again, just to take the gospel. And what we try to do, this one thing I do, I have a church, I pastor it, I do the things, but I, I, I feel very burdened. I try to be on the street every day, and we take this many tracks, and we started doing this back in 1988. And I, you know, I've had to, I've been to many of the places, but I take four tracks with me, and one is perhaps today. And this is entirely Scripture uh, presenting the premillennial return of Christ, almost entirely Scripture. So it talks about all the Scriptures on the rapture, the tribulation, defining the three great storms that are coming, warning people, and uh, explaining it. It, It's got uh, a time of Antichrist, a time of Jacob's trouble. And then the return of the to reign on earth, and are you ready? It will be like the days of Lot, like the days of Noah. Uh, so we've got that one. We've got the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, we passed this out on the continent, La Croix and the Tombeauvide. We would take it to France and to Brussels. Uh, and then we've got John 1, and, this is John 19 and 20, completely written out with the uh, Bible, classic verses on salvation, John 1 and 3 uh, with the classic verses on salvation, and then in the beginning, and we like to take this to the, uh, I take this in uh, along with this uh, to the British, the uh, Science Museum. As they come out of the Natural History Museum in London, and they turn the corner to go to the Science Museum. And of course, when they come out of that science museum, uh, uh, I'm sorry, out of the Natural History Museum, they're so wise. I mean, really, they just, uh, it's just nice to meet people that really now understand. And they come and they pass me, and I give them in the beginning. And these are the classic arguments for a sudden and recent creation, and they'll either get this or in the gospel. And we, so we, we stand there, and, uh, uh, but we try to go out every day, and if a person's generally, if I'm passing out all four, if a person stops, uh, the, the approach is very simple. I say, well, listen, I've, I've got some I want to give you here. I said, you can have, this is the beginning, you can have this one, because I'm not certain which of the four they've gotten. So I say, now, you can have the beginning. This is the beginning. And then I said, 
and you can have the end. This is the end. This is how it began. This is how it's going to end. And this is in between. And here's the gospel, and here's the death and the resurrection of Christ. So we use that simple approach in uh, the, the different market areas of London, and it is a real blessing. It is an absolute wonderful blessing to do this. Many, and like you, you could write a book on people that you've talked to, and, and uh, uh, we have every possible uh, response. But it is good to be there in the market daily, Acts 17, 17. And so we try to uphold the Word of God. We really believe Christ is coming soon. Uh, we emphasize that, Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when He cometh, shall find watching. I said to our people in uh, spring, I'll be amazed if we make it through the summer. We've made it through the summer. Now I'm telling them, I'll be amazed if we make it through the autumn. I really think, I really think, we've reached a crisis point concerning Israel. Israel is at the center. Uh, it's uh, Zechariah 12.3, Jerusalem has become a burdensome stone for all people. Uh, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble is near, and uh, a lot of things are happening. We've always said that. We've always felt that way. But we think the Lord's coming is near, and what we're going to do, we better do it now. We better do it now. Uh, he's coming soon. I've tried, you know, I've, I've been uh, looking at this for quite a few years now. I've tried to and by the way, you can get this. Uh, this has been published. You can buy a copy of this just on Amazon.com. They sell it. Uh, but uh, this is just the essence of the argument. But what it tries to do is the first half of it, it's just a visual demonstration of how much is missing. So a person sees that, and hopefully that will get them to want to look a bit further, because uh, a, a lot is missing. But this is the, the basic overview of the, sub, of the subject, and we're going to look at just some things here. On your introduction, on your introduction on page three, and don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, uh, but if you look at the beginning, uh, 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 the, the middle of the page, it says, from 1611 our, until our generation, there was only one widely used Bible in the English-speaking world. The AV became the standard in that, in that empire upon which the sun never set. And in that language which is the primary vehicle of international discourse. It penetrated the world's continents. It brought multitudes to saving faith in Christ. It became the impetus of the great missionary movements. Through it, Christian workers heard and answered the call to world evangelization. It was the source of the greatest revival since the days of the apostles, Street preachers, coal porters, 
church planners, Sunday school teachers, and tract distributors took the King James Bible into teeming cities and across country lanes. It was the high-water mark in the history of the gospel spread. However, in this world there is always an onslaught against truth and righteousness and a tendency to put aside the good and to substitute something that is inferior. And so, during the 19th century, the call for a revised Bible began to be heard for the most part, and certainly in the beginning, the call did not come from fervent Bible believers, but rather those who were leaning toward theological liberalism. It came from men who were comfortable with the rising tide of rationalism, Darwin, and the back, and the back to Rome uh, movement. The first major revision was published in 1881. After the initial excitement, there was little public support. Uh, the same lack of acceptance greeted the American ASV edition in 1901. Others followed Weymouth, Williams, Moffat, Beck, Goodspeed, 20th century, but still little impact. But in 1952 came the revised Standard Version, uh, produced with the backing of the Liberal National Council of Churches in America. The pace now quickened, public acceptance began to rise. Others followed the New English, Amplified, Berkeley, uh, Phillips, Weiss, Living, New American, Good News, Jerusalem, and especially the New International. Each came with the promise that they were based on the earliest manuscripts and the latest scholarship and that God's Word would now be more easily understood. Uh, taking up this last point, it is interesting to see the names given to a number of these versions. You had the authentic New Testament, the New Testament in plain English, the New Testament in basic English, the simplified New Testament in plain English for today's reader. That's, a, that's the S-N-T-P-E-T-R version. Uh, inspired letters of the New Testament in clearest English, and then a number of the revisions have been revised, the new revised standard version, the new Berkeley version, the new, that's right, New Jerusalem Bible. Recently a new NIV has been announced. There have been upwards of a hundred modern Bibles published in the English-speaking uh, English language. And the question is, are they memorized? Are they study-worn? Have people drawn closer to God? Are we better off? What about expository through the Bible, simple through the Bible preaching? Uh, and what does the Bible say? It used to just be, what does the Bible, the Bible says. That's all you had to say, the Bible says. Now it becomes how does this version render the passage? It, from a strong, clear, declarative, the Bible says to an anemic, tepid, how does this, how, this is how this version renders the passage. So really, the trumpet is blowing an uncertain sound. And um, again, so you have um, all of this. And where do you go for, again, there's been the, multiplication of versions, 
you now have this emphasis upon extra-biblical revelation, which we've got now in the charismatic movement. And so where do we go to hear the Bible uh, today? Uh, so this is um, written in order just to get people to think. We know others have written ably on this, and we're thankful for everyone who has uh, done something. Uh, the thing that got me going, literally, uh, somebody years and years and years ago, back, well, the missionary I mentioned to Australia, Randy Pike, gave me uh, the eye-opener. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the eye-opener. And this was one of the first leaflets. Have you ever seen it, Colin? Yeah. And uh, I had the original eye-opener. This is a new one, you know, the modern version eye-opener. But uh, uh, the original, there, I had, you know, everything changes. <laughs> no, the, the, the new eye-opener is fuller. That's the, the, the only difference. But the eye-opener. And James Jasper Ray was concerned about this. And he knew that passages were not in the modern Bibles. And so he was one of the first compilers back in the 1950s. And somebody, well, the, this uh, uh, Randy Pike gave me one of these. And that got me thinking. And it lit a light, and I've been going on ever since. But uh, uh, so, uh, this is just... Uh, what I've done. I realized the effect that had on me. So here we have now, here we have the visual representation here. Key passages are missing. And so we start. Matthew one twenty-five. and knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son. Firstborn is missing in the modern Bibles. Uh, she brought forth her son. Uh, some don't like to think that Mary had other children. Firstborn is missing. And uh, on you go. Everything that you see underlined is missing. And uh, again, it just goes on page after page. A person just has to leaf through this to understand there is an issue involved here. And then you go to page 9. You go to page 9, and the names of Christ are missing. And so we have dealt with that. We've shown that uh, over between 175 and, and 214 times, you have names of Christ missing in the modern Bibles. We give you a list of these missing names of Christ. So uh, you just keep leafing through and you see the missing names of Christ. And then we, as we've shown you, we show you the, uh, the implication of these missing names. This idea, this thing called adoptionism. The name Jesus separated from a name of deity. And looking at how this separation takes place, we show you this beginning on page or 15. Uh, and so it talks about the ancient heresy. And then coming to page 17, 
further significant passages missing. And here the enormity of it. Uh, surely, uh, if a person is reasonably objective, now this is significant. Uh, this is, what are you going to do about it? So we've got a lot more, and just you see page after page after page of missing passages. And then you come to uh, page 22, we've mentioned that hell has been taken out of the NIV Old Testament. It's reduced by a third in the New Testament. And so you have that, and uh, you see this. Uh, so hell and these passages comparing the King James with the NIV. And then the question of how many missing words. And we actually, we had a Bible Institute in Johannesburg years ago, and Catherine Carmichael of, of, uh, uh, in Johannesburg, uh, one of our students, uh, for part of her coursework, uh, she counted the differences, the times, the number of missing words between the Greek text that underlies the King James Bible and that which underlies the modern version. And so we came out with a number, 2,886 fewer words. So that, but then it doesn't stop there. It's not just a question of missing words that you see a, a, a list of, a book-by-book a, a -book list of on page 25. You go to, you go to uh, page 26, and there's a demonstration of the total number of missing, uh, of missing, uh, uh, the total number of changes. Now, the two men who took these two old manuscripts and put them together were Drs. Westcott and Dr. Hort. Uh, Fenton Anthony Hort, um, I've forgotten Westcott's first name, uh, Brooke Voss Westcott. So Drs. Westcott and Hort took these two old manuscripts. One was at the Vatican Library, dates back to about 350. The other they found at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he took these two manuscripts and put them together. They took these two manuscripts, put them together. They favored Vaticanus over Sinaiticus. But that became the great text. And then, in one of his uh, statements, Dr. Hort said, nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. He didn't say this, but modern defenders of the King James, uh, modern defenders of the modern text quote him as saying that you could probably put all the differences between the new text that they're bringing in and the text uh, that underlies our King James Version, 
you could probably put all of the changes on one page. Now, Hort didn't say that, but he said something that moves in that direction. So it's very common today for uh, uh, teachers, lecturers in Bible colleges to stand in front of their students and say, really, the emphasis that these King James-only people are making is totally out of proportion. You could probably get all the, all the changes on one page. You could. Provided you write small enough, and provided you got a big enough piece of paper. And you're going to have to write very small, and you're going to have to get a very big piece of paper. Because there's over 8,000 differences in the New Testament. We're talking about the New Testament here. 8,000 differences. And these 8,000 differences are important. Now, not all of them can be translated, but you know our Bible has a root. It's the underlying Greek and Hebrew text. It has the flower. That's the translation, what we actually see. Root and flower should be in perfect harmony. You can't have a nice flower with a diseased root beneath the surface. So the, the, and you will find that these differences, even where they can't be translated, they weaken the root structure of the sentence. So 8,000 differences. 8,000 differences. So, uh, how many kinds of variations? Uh, we've got a, a book out that actually lists them all, compares them all. If you want to see them, here they are. So we've done our homework on this. We know how many are there. 8,000. 8,000. And uh, they can wave their single sheet of paper all they want. Uh, you, you need a bigger one. You need a bigger sheet of paper. And then the theory beside the shorter altered text. And this now, you read it through, but it'll be good. It's reasonably understandable. Uh, and uh, Dot, my dear wife, proofs everything I write, and she understands it. You'll understand, and she's able to point out to me where I need to change a f uh, phrase here or there. So you'll be able to understand it. Uh, she's she's quite a critic. Yeah, I'm amazed. We. Uh, we've made it this long, but uh, <laughs> no, she's very lovely, lovely. And uh, uh, but anyway, the theory be behind the shorter altered text. What do they do? What do you do? You got two manuscripts. You put them together, and then you devise a theory which explains why you've done it. And it's really clearly uh, a case of getting the, uh, you know, making the theory fit. So what did they do? What did they do? They took these two old and disused manuscripts. We say disused, there weren't copies made of them. We don't, didn't have copies made of them. 
And then they found whatever other support they might get that, to support them, but they couldn't get a lot. By the way, in the preface of the NAV, NIV, it says the NIV is based, the New Testament of the NIV is based on an eclectic text. Does anybody know what the word eclectic means from various sources? Ah, now that's a little bit in contradiction of what I have just said. I'm saying the modern Bibles are not from different sources. I'm saying the modern Bibles are based on two old manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus. So, but they're saying it's an eclectic text. They go to different texts. They go here and there. They get the best. That's the impression that they've given. Who's right? Actually, we're both right. But they don't go get the best. Here's the problem. Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus frequently disagree. What do they do when they disagree? They'll probably favor Vaticanus. But then, if they disagree, they have to go to other sources. So that's what eclectic really means to them. They go to these other sources because their two primary sources frequently disagree. If they do agree, they will rarely depart from them. In this in this paper, we've given you how many times they'll depart when the two uh, agree. About once every two pages is, is all that they'll do. So here is a theory that they devised. And we talk about these two old manuscripts. Nobody used them. They are in better shape. You can see, you can see... Um, uh, Sinaiticus, it's open, a page, it's open at the British Library on Euston Road. Uh, and frankly, it's in better shape than this Bible that I bought in Birmingham uh, 22 years ago. It's probably in better shape. Now, if it's in better shape, that's a pretty good indication that it wasn't being too widely copied from. Nobody copied from it. We don't have copies of it. Nobody's ever demonstrated a clear copy. They were two very old manuscripts dating from about 350. Doctors Westcott and Hort put them together. That's your new text. And then they devised this textual theory. Um, and at point one, page 29, in matters of textual criticism, this is what doctors Horton said, the Bible should be treated like any other ancient book. False. Uh, they said conflation, uh, the combining of text types, uh, is why the King James type of text is longer. False. I won't, I won't bore you uh, with the reasons they give. It's false. It's false. Uh, they say... Despite the numerical advantage, the traditional or Byzantine text, as it's called, is merely one of three or four competing text types. We've got 5,000 
five and a half thousand manuscripts today. Almost all of them are of the kind that underlie our King James Bible. About 40 of them will show some departure, some departure. But even in these cases, the, the manuscript would still probably support the King James more than it does the modern version. So, what they've said is, what we got, we, we've argued the vast majority of manuscripts support the King James. But what they've done is, they've taken maybe 5% of them that show some departure. And they've taken that 5% and they've subdivided those into three other groups. So you've got, now you've got three groups plus the kind of group that underlies the King James. Now you've got four groups of ancient manuscripts of which the King James is only one of the four. Now this is really higher mathematics here. This is brilliant. But our side covers over 90%, and their side may be 5-6%, or 3. And they said, despite the new numerical advantage, the traditional Byzantine text is merely one of three or four competing text. This is dishonest. Okay, so we give you that. And then uh, again, they say the numerical preponderance on page 31 of the received text can be explained by a study. Can we, is that a little bit warm in here? Or is it just me? Are you warm? It's a little bit warm. I can sense uh, a, a kind of warm feeling amongst the people. You, you, the, you get this uh, kind of far, when you're a little bit warm, you get a kind of a far off um, going into a, uh, you know, maybe meditation or something. <laughs> no, just, uh, so the, the numerical, number four here on page 31, the numerical preponderance of the received text can be explained by a study of genealogical descent of the manuscripts. What they, now, what they're saying is, okay, you got 5,500 manuscripts in the world. They're saying they're all copies of each other. So, uh, I've, I've given, I brought 50 of these today. And they're all copies of each other. They're all identical. So I can't say I brought really 55 different studies. They're all the same. And they're saying that's what happens with all these masses of manuscripts that underlie the King James Bible. They're just copies of each other, like somebody had a Ronio machine. No. Because they're all slightly different. Just enough difference to let you know that they're an independent witness. And that, and this, our friend from Greece, you know, they've got these uh, monasteries there, they have, most of the uh, uh, manuscripts are in Greece today. Um, and uh, 
be interesting to talk to him more about that. But if you examine them, they're almost identical, but they've got enough difference to let you know that they were an independent. So they're really independent witnesses to their own line of transmission. They're not cross copies, but they're, they speak of a long line of transmission. Okay, and uh, then they'll say, but bottom of verse 31, the distinctive received text readings, those that underlie our King James Bibles, those that have been underlined are not generally seen before 350. False. Totally false. We have a book. Uh, it's, you can get it on Amazon, Early Manuscripts, Church Fathers, and the Authorized Version. We show how false that statement is. Uh, page 32, there are no signs of deliberate falsification of the text for doctrinal purposes during the early centuries. False. Second uh, Thess- Corinthians 2 verse 17 says, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. Many have tried to corrupt the Word of God. Here we've got a statement from Tertullian in the year 208, down at the bottom of page 32. His statement, read it through. Uh, he was aware of corruption. He says, go to these places like Corinth and like Philippi and like Thessalonica where Paul went. Check your copies against theirs. And he was aware in that day that people were trying to corrupt the Word of God. But the wonderful thing about it is it was the pure preserved copies that multiplied generally. You're going to spend months copying a manuscript. You want to know that this is the genuine article, that this is the true preserved one. You're not going to want to spend time on what you know is has been corrupted. And then number seven, uh, Westcott and Hort added, the shorter reading is to be preferred. Well, that's again the case of tailoring the cloth to fit uh, Vaticanus and Sinai. It's shorter manuscripts, so naturally the shorter, um, and so they, again, it's false. It's false. So these are the um, arguments that they used. And you see something of, of Westcott and Hortz. You see his, his attitude. If you look at page 34, a preconceived malice. Ponder what he wrote to a friend in 1851 when only 23 years old. Now, I know you've really achieved just about all the wisdom you're going to achieve when you reach 23, but uh, still, you know, really, this was too much. It says, I had no idea till the last few weeks of the importance of text, having read so little Greek New Testament and dragged on with the villainous Textus Receptus. That's the name of the Greek text that underlies the King James Bible. Think of that vile Textus Receptus. I mean, it brought so much blessing. All the great uh, uh, versions of Europe, uh, 
uh, were translated from it. Thousands, hundreds of thousands converted through it. What makes a 23-year-old man speak of something that brought such blessing, calling it vile and villainous? And again, asking the question, why do people do what they do? Why do they have the attitude? It goes deeper than, um, you know, you, you look at the work of Satan here, really, in the heart of a man. Okay, here is the manuscript evidence beginning on page 35 for the text of our authorized version. Uh, you can go through that at your leisure. Uh, one of our books does deal with it quite at length. Go to page 42. The huge disparity amongst the few modern versions. Uh, again, this brings in this matter of eclecticism. They've got to make choices because their manuscripts that they have shown, that they have uh, embraced, are not cohesive. The great multitude of manuscripts are cohesive, which underscore our authorized Bible. And then the key epochs of the preservational history of the New Testament. And some of these periods and how God put a fence around it. You have the early lectionary period where people probably didn't have their own Bibles, but you go into Greek-speaking churches and they would have Bible readings throughout the year, and they had a lectionary-type uh, manuscript, and it was divided into the uh, days of the year. Now, most of our lectionary manuscripts are, are quite late. However, the system has now been shown to go way back into the third century or even earlier, and you could never separate the text from the formatting of this lectionary system. And it was like a fence around uh, the New Testament in those early days. And the type of manuscripts that, that support the modern uh, versions, the NIV, never found their way into these Greek lectionary services. So the lectionary period uh, goes back a long way, but it was part of the preservation uh, process. And then on page 44, you had uh, uh, something beginning in uh, 800 or 900 or 700. Uh, it began a little bit gradually, but you changed the text uh, from a large letter to a small letter, uppercase to lowercase from unseal, large letter script, to lowercase, minuscule script. Virtually every minuscule manuscript is of the type which underlies our King James Bible. Now, in the year 800, scribes had to make a decision, and they had a better view in the 800s than we do in 2000, 2010. And they were quite confident when we copy manuscripts, uh, we know the kind we're going to copy. 
It wasn't the kind that underlie the modern version. It wasn't the kind with the 2,900 uh, uh, omissions. It was a kind which underlies, and so virtually every type, uh, every copy, every minuscule manuscript. Minuscules, unseals, different kinds of manuscripts are explained earlier in this paper. And so, and then the printing and the spread of the received text. During the 1500s, uh, let me read this at the bottom of page 44. It does not seem to have occurred to any of those so involved to set type for anything other than Greek editions based on the traditional text. No Greek editions approaching an Aleph B. Those are the designations given to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Sinaiticus is manuscript Aleph. Um, they, usually they started with A, B, C, but they already had an A, so they put uh, Aleph for Sinaiticus. An Aleph, B, B is Vaticanus kind of text. That type of text didn't get within sight of Europe's publishing houses. There was no debate, no doubt. They knew of manuscripts with apparent readings, but they left them where they lay. The received text and the Great Reformation Bible spread across Europe and then to the ends of the earth. Debate, dissent, and opposition would come later, but first the pure and full scriptures were allowed to do their work. They had the first voice. With the invention of printing, it was this kind of Greek text that would have, be the first to speak. We see God's hand in this. Again, you had, uh, before the King James was published, you had a number of Greek editions, but they were all very close. Uh, they were independent witnesses, and uh, not carbon copies, but the type, uh, they all represented the type that we underlies our King James Bible. There was a refinement of the text, uh, and I mentioned some of these earlier editions uh, which led to the uh, printing of the, uh, the publication of the King James Bible. So you, you see a fourth major epoch, the refining of printed editions of the received text. By the way, I'm using terms like received text, uh, traditional text. Uh, basically, these are the great majority of manuscripts that we have today, the type that underlie the King James Bible. And then you've got seven great preparatory English Bibles at the top of page 47. Uh, and uh, middle of the first uh, paragraph, it mentions Tyndall, Coverdale, Matthews, Great, Taverners, Geneva, Bishops. Uh, English received, uh, uh, became fully matured during this period. The doctrinal words uh, became very much fixed in our language. And so this was a preparation. And then you have the publication of the King James Bible, and only God can make a book of standard. And uh, it just became, a, it's a, next year it will be 400 years. Uh, uh, they 
uh, and I just mentioned it, says, In their scholarly diligence, above all their devotion to the Scriptures, they knew how to translate these words. Um, they, and uh, just it speaks about them there. No labor was spared. They brought back to the anvil that which they had hammered. Uh, the translation was fully accurate and intact. It was word for word expressive of the original inspired words, reverent, exhortative, convicting, meditative, comforting, timeless, though now in English the king's speech remained the king's speech. And then I'm so glad that, uh, you know, it's, I think, the hand of God that with all of those hundred or so modern English versions, only one of them purports to use the kind of text which underlies our King James Bible. And so that keeps the matter pretty clear. The new King James does, but listen, there are real problems with it. We mention the new King James Bible further in this. But the traditional kept uh, text was kept separate from the modern versions. And then I do this say uh, on page 48, this raises a question concerning the new King James Bible. You need to read that and that will at least give you a, a basic in, insight into the problems that concern us concerning the New King James Bible. The history of our Bible is a tale of two cities. These two old manuscripts have their origin in Alexandria. The text that underlies our Bible has its origin in Antioch a tale of two cities. Will it be Antioch or Alexandria? And we have no uh, more authoritative person to tell us how bad things were in Alexandria than Bruce Metzger, who was one of the leading proponents of the modern versions. And he, on page 49, tells you just how bad things were in Alexandria, yet this is where these two old manuscripts came from. If you were going to buy a, some prize Bibles for your Sunday school class, by all means, go to the bookshops in, 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 in Antioch, not Alexandria. The worst possible place. And it he enumerates, thank you, Bruce Metzger, of all people, I wish he'd taken his own medicine, but of, of all, he enumerates how bad it was in Alexandria. And actually, one of the other uh, leaders of the, uh, is Kurt Allen. Have you heard of Kurt Allen? Who's the, the man and he became concerned about this. And he tried to say, you know, when I get excited, my, hear my heart. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, tried to, he tried to say, shortly before his death, that it's almost impossible to believe that such pure manuscripts as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus 
could have come from Alexandria. And he tried to do some revising, revision work, and he tried to say, oh, they didn't come from Alexandria. No, nobody followed him on that. They did come from Alexandria. And they are the old heresy revived. They are corrupted manuscripts. So, again, timeless or time-bound. Uh, yes, uh, you'll find a few old words in the authorized version. Not as many as you might think, and that's quite remarkable because anything else, page 49, timeless or time-bound, anything else from that period is almost impossible to read. And the fact that so little is truly archaic uh, is, is, is remarkable. Uh, and what we have found, a modern equivalent of a so-called archaic English word in the authorized version frequently will not have the depth of meaning of the original word. So that's a matter to keep it. It's best to explain it. It's best to explain it. But there was this idea that, uh, you know, we need to really bring the Bible into modern, uh, the modern age and people won't understand. And uh, a fellow by the name of Eugene Nida brought out what is called dynamic equivalence. And he said, the Bible is bound in its ancient time and culture. We need to release it from these bonds and let it flower. And this is explained uh, beginning on page 49. I give a an example of this, uh, speaking in irony uh, of this new method, missionary director Dan Truax writes, admittedly, readers of the, in the jungles of Brazil would understand Isaiah 118 better with the cornflower substitution, the cornflower translation. In other words, people in Brazil, they don't know what snow is. So if you say, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, now, according to Eugene Nida, we need to really change snow to cornflower. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as cornflower. Now they'll understand it. So he, he says, talks about this. Admittedly, the readers in the jungles of Brazil would understand Isaiah 118 better with the cornflower substitution. The cornflower translation would read as follows. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as cornflower. But consider the dilemma of these translators when they came to certain Bible verses into which flower in the place of snow would not fit. He slew a lot. He, David slew a lion in a pit in a cornflower day. For as the rain cometh down from heaven and the cornflower from heaven, and then he talks about, well, why not just use, translate the Bible as it is and explain it. And so here is this idea of trying to bring it into modern, modern realm. The AV or uh, NIV English. And uh, again, excellent there. Uh, very, very good. And Edward Hill's statement here on page 52, 
The English of the King James Version is not the English of the early 17th century. To be exact, it is not a type of English that was ever spoken anywhere. Amazing. It is biblical English. It was not used. It was always a bit out of date. It was always a bit apart. Uh, Cliff Richard once said, Oh, I want a Bible that reads like my daily newspaper. And everyone says, Amen. Wonderful. King James was never that way. It was always different than your newspaper. It was always a part. It had a certain otherworldliness about it. It really did. It still does. It will always. And then you've got this translators to the readers. Here's the abbreviated form. These are the statements that written out in some King James Bibles, uh, the points you need to know the most that are most important for us in the current debate. And, uh, you know, just you know, just something, uh, you know, just look at page 53 in praise of the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures then being acknowledged to be so. This is what the King James translators wrote. This is how they viewed uh, what they were working with. The Scriptures being then acknowledged to be so full and so perfect. How can we excuse ourselves of negligence if we do not study them, of curiosity if we be not content with them? It is not only an armor, the Bible is not just an armor, but also a whole armory of weapons, both offensive and defensive, whereby we may save ourselves and put the enemy to fight. It is not a herb, but a tree, or rather a whole paradise of trees of life, which bring forth fruit every month, and the fruit thereof is for meat and the leaves for medicine. It is not a pot, the Bible is not a pot of manna, or a cruise of oil, which were of, of, for memory only, or for, or for a meal's meat or two, but as it were a shower of heavenly bread, sufficient for a whole host, be it never so great, and as it were for a whole cellar, full of oil vessels, whereby all our necessities may provide for and our debts discharged. Going down to the middle of page 54, uh, number 8 there, translation, speaking about the necessity for translation. Translation is that openeth that openeth the window to let in the light that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, the necessity of translating, i.e., Greek into English, it, that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain, that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the whale, that we may come by the water, even as Jacob rolled away the stone from the mouth of the whale, by which means the flocks of Laban were watered. Indeed, without translation into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned are but like 
children at Jacob's well, which was deep, without a bucket or something to draw. Isn't that good? I mean, really, where do you find that today? And uh, that gives you just an insight of how they approached it. So you've got these key uh, full uh, statements. Uh, wonderful. I'm looking pithy. Is that the word? What does pithy mean? What's your understanding? Weighty? Weighty and... Yes. Right. Well, those, those are very pithy. And uh, so, really, uh, we've given you, beginning on page 59, the principles of Bible preservation. Time is moving on here. And you can read these. You've got some key verses here on how the Bible promises its own preservation. Uh, if you'll notice at the top of, uh, oh, down a few verses on page 60, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And you've got all of these scriptures that promise verbal preservation, not just the idea was preserved, but the actual, the actual words, uh, the very, very words are preserved. Uh, the starting point of apostasy, principles of preservation. Preservation must be approached by an attitude of faith. Uh, preservation is grounded in the um, eternal counsels of God. Uh, preservation is brought a pass through the priesthood of believers. God puts it on His people's heart to guard His Word, to stand guard over His Word. And down through the ages, there have been people like that. Preser preservation extends to the actual words. Uh, inspiration is word for word. Preservation is word for word. Preservation is operative in the spread of the Scriptures. And... Um, uh, Years ago, I was driving uh, across uh, Midwest of America, and I heard a debate. And a lecturer from one of the leading Bible colleges in America said, God preserved His words, preserved His word. They like to use the word singular. God preserved His word in the sands of Egypt. In other words, they found some old manuscripts in Egypt. No, he didn't. God did not preserve his word by them being hidden away. He preserved them in their spreading. And then, uh, preservation of the original inspired words will result in great in standard translations being based, translations that become a standard. And so that's uh, on page 61. Uh, the preservation makes it possible for copies of the Scriptures still to be called the Scriptures. Now, inspiration is once and for all. Preservation goes on till new heaven and new earth. So it's not a case of continual inspiration. It's a case of uh, pres preservation. The sword was 
made back then, the sword is kept sharp. We don't keep making a new sword. It's the same sword that's been sharp, kept sharp down through the ages. But preservation makes it possible for copies of the Scripture still to be called the Scriptures. And then you have 2 Timothy 3, 15. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It was given by inspiration of God in the past. It is profitable for doctrine now. Uh, present uh, preservation, you got, uh, you got the, links past inspiration is inseparably linked in the, this verse to present profitability. This is still the complete, intact Word of God because of God's promise. But first, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 explains it. Guidance into all truth. Uh, there was guidance in the early days. He's promised, uh, when he, how be, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He guided into all truth as to the canon of Scripture. They knew that Second Peter was in, but they knew that the epistle to Barnabas was out. So they knew which books were in the Bible. Uh, it had to do with the text of Scripture. They knew those manuscripts flowing from Antioch were the true Word of God. They continually made copies of them. Those from Alexandria, they reject, or they just, they should have burnt them, but they, 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 um, they, they, uh, they didn't make copies of them. And then if you've got a manuscript, and there will be a few variations, God would lead you. And so He would guide into all truth. If there were slight differences between the different editions of the Textus Receptus, before you come to a standard version like the King James, why God would show. You know, they, He would guide into all truth. And so uh, that is uh, very important. Now, I've listed here uh, some, uh, uh, here are the most common arguments used against our Bible. They like to hammer Erasmus. Erasmus was the first editor of a printed edition of the text that under, uh, of, the, uh, of the Greek Testament. Uh, just about the first. There was a race between him and another man. But uh, as we'll say, he was the first editor of the printed received text. And they say he was a Roman Catholic. And just about everyone back there was Roman Catholic. The Reformation hadn't come yet. Uh, but he also took a stand against the teachings of Rome. He wasn't the most popular man. They say he was a humanist, not in the modern sense of the word. But the one they like to hit is, they say, he came out with this edition in 1516, and he did it in haste to beat another man to the press. And uh, they say, oh, he just, well, he did come out. It was in haste, not to beat somebody else to the press, but it came out in haste 
through the providence of God to be there for a certain man who had a, a piece of paper and he was nailing it to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. And by the providence of God, Erasmus got out his, the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament just in time for the Reformation. And wonderful. And then it spread like wildfire. It spread like wildfire. Wonderful. And so some other, and we've got the, they like to hammer Erasmus. Uh, uh, but uh, you can read, you can read that. And the First John 5, 7, you'll want to read about First John 5, 7. Very important. Uh, they say it shouldn't be in your Bible. It should be. You know, they say it's not in, in all, it's not in most of the Greek manuscripts. But I'll tell you, every Greek manuscript leaves the footprint of 1 John 5, 7, because when you take out the disputed words, they don't match up grammatically. And to Greek speakers, I had a Greek man in our church, he said, this is a clear violation of Greek, ma it, 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 hits, it hits a Greek reader in the face. And so anyway, but that's another, you, that's a, it's a little bit of a complicated matter, but uh, 1 John 5, 7 is the greatest passage in the Bible on the Holy Trinity. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. It's there. It's there. And it reminds us of that wicked queen, Athaliah, who uh, tried to destroy all the seed royal, and she destroyed them all except one man, Joash. And here was an attempt to rip out, and I'll tell you, there's been an attack against our Bible, to rip out the greatest passage on the Holy Trinity. And it leaves its mark when it's taken out. But you can read about uh, a bit about that there. And uh, something about marginal notes in the AV, people say, well, they only viewed their work as being uh, provisional and tentative, uh, reveals nothing of the sort. Uh, they just told you, they let you into some of their uh, researches. It says, truly good reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet make a bad one good but to make a good one better, and out of many good ones, one principal one. They saw their work as a principal work, not to be justly accepted against. Uh, they say many changes have been, page 68, many changes have been made to the AV over the century. Uh, really not. It's just an updated, uh, update of punctuation, some spelling to the more modern uh, uh, spelling, uh, and some uh, printing errors. And then there's too many Old Testament, old-fashioned expressions. And should we not replace the E-T-H and I-T-H verb endings? Uh, known as the historic presence. Let me read it. Uh, they are there for good reason. They translate a certain usage of the Greek 
present tense. At times, though the Greek verb is in the present, the action has actually taken place in the past or has past connotation. This was a device in that language to give vividness by bringing a past event more into the present. Therefore, if you translate these occurrences with the English present as the NIV, you will be missing something of the sense intended. Or if, like the NASV, you use the English past with an asterisk, you will also be missing the sense. The AV uses the historical present, uh, seeth, taketh, etc., as a kind of bridging verb to convey that both the past and the present are in view. Therefore, while some view the ETH endings as a distraction, they are a necessity to more accurate translation. And uh, uh, so, uh, and then it just, uh, we give a couple of, uh, they say, uh, examples, they say of errors in the authorized version. It should be strain out a gnat. Uh, where rather than strain at a gnat. Now I've never, I don't know if you'd, uh, you know, we had drinking tea today. We were drinking coffee, right? Now if we saw a gnat in that coffee we were drinking, we'd have a couple of things. We could have taken a cloth, another cup, and poured the tea through the, co- the cloth into the cup. That's what they're trying to tell us. We sh- this should strain out a gnat. Or we'd probably take a tissue and just try and strain at it to try to get that gnat out. Anyway, whether I made my point there or not, uh, read this. This is great. This is absolutely great. It's the, our English Bible says, strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Strain at a gnat. It's not strain out. It's not strain out. We give you another example of, uh, of, of, of an error and uh, uh, something here. It says, if you look at page 70, uh, it says, if people want to say there's an error in the AV, they really need to bring forth their their uh, evidence. The statement about Richard, Dr. Richard Kilby. Richard Kilby, the, doc, the translator in the Old Testament group at Oxford, heard a young parson's complain in an earnest sermon that a certain passage should read in a way he stated. After the sermon, Dr. Kilby took the young man aside and told him, that the group had discussed at length not only his proposed reading, but thirteen others. Only then had they decided on the phrasing as it appeared. And so, really, if you're going to say, okay, they should have, they mistrans, make certain you've done your homework. You'll need it. You'll need it. Um, And then they like to say great fundamental leaders, great Bible believers, great 
men of the past made favorable comments of the modern Bibles. Recently, this was, was published. Trans, trusted Voices on Translations. And here are some truly great men. We've got Spurgeon, John Wesley, D.L. Moody, G. Campbell Morgan, Harry Ironside, Alexander McLaren, C.I. Schofield, R.A. Torrey, many others. And all of these men do make favorable comments on the revised versions. And let me tell you, when Westcott and Hort came, it was a steamroller that swept across Europe. It crossed the Atlantic. There were very few who stood against it. They've now got these three old, two old manuscripts. Somehow, it's amazing how things can change so rapidly. And it did. It was, and everyone, good, bad, indifferent, were swept along by it. And, and the only problem is, you see, Spurgeon used the King James, but he does make some comments in favor of the revised edition. And we all are thankful for Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was a five-point Calvinist. I'm sorry about that, but we are thankful we are thankful for him. But uh, he can be forgiven. But, uh, but Spurgeon never produced worship, never produced research. Wesley never produced research. They made statements, but if you search their writings, there's no research, no research. Dean Bergen in Chichester, uh, Anglican, wish we could have gotten him a little bit closer to a baptismal pool, uh, wish Baptists had seen it, but Dean Bergen produced research. Others have produced research, so this means absolutely nothing. There's no research here. And... Uh, so that's the, the argu how that argument is answered. Again, I give you an example of the downward course. Um, and then I just have to close the great uh, contrast here. I'll just read you a little bit more of this, and we'll close with this. The great contrast uh, in, uh, toward the bottom of page 72 second paragraph from the bottom, and in what sort did they assemble? These are the uh, uh, translators of the authorized version. In the trust of their own knowledge or of their sharpness of wit and believe they had both, or in the deepness of judgment as it were in the ar an arm of flesh at no hand. They trusted in him that hath the key of David, opening and no man shutting. They prayed to the Lord, the Father of our Lord, to the effect that St. Augustine did. O let thy scriptures be my pure delight. Let me not be deceived in them. Neither let me deceive by them. In this confidence and with this devotion did they assemble to gather. Not too many, lest one should trouble another. Yet many, lest many things haply might escape them. If you ask what they had before them, 
Truly, it was the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the Greek of the New. These are the two golden pipes, or rather conduits, through, through uh, the olive branches, through which the olive branches empty themselves into the gold. Neither did they think it much to consult the translators or commentators, Chaldee, Hebrew, Syrian, Greek, or Latin, no, nor the Spanish, also the Spanish, French, Italian, Dutch. Neither did we dis disdain to revise that which we had done and to bring back to the anvil that which we had hammered. But having and using uh, as great helps as were needful, and fearing no reproach for slowness, nor coveting praise for expedition, we have at length, uh, through the good hand of the Lord upon us, brought the work that, uh, to, to that pass that you now see. Many other things we might give the warning of, gentle reader. And by the way, uh, their warnings... They might address them as gentle reader, but their warnings are not very gentle. If we had not exceeded the measure of a preface already, it remaineth that we commend thee to God and to the Spirit of His grace, which is able to build further than we can ask or think. He removeth the scales from our eyes, the veils from our hearts, opening our wits that we may understand His word, enlarging our hearts, and correcting our affection, that we may love it above gold and silver, that we may love it to the end. You're brought unto the fountains of living water, which ye dig not, do not cast earth into them with the Philistines, neither prefer broken pits before them with the wicked Jews, or others have labored, and you may enter into their labors, O oh, receive not so great things in vain. O oh, despise not so great salvation. Be not like swine to tread underfoot so precious things, neither yet like dogs to tear and abuse. Now this is what they felt about those that would attack the work. And again, what a Bible we have. Uh, this is how the, the work was viewed. Uh, take the old King James Bible. It's a 400-year standard next year. Uh, read it, meditate on it, memorize it, obey it, spread it. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we are indeed thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that we could be called to have a part in, in upholding Thy precious uh, originally inspired, forever preserved words. We're thankful. We're so thankful. We're thankful for this book. We're thankful, Father, that it has changed our lives. Help us, Lord, in these very last days when all the old landmarks are being removed. Help us, Lord, as uh, whether it be down a country lane or into a teeming city, we might spread the wonderful gospel that we find here. Bless this church. Bless those gathered here today. Uh, give us all safety as we return to our homes. We pray this in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Mm -hmm.